But what is the book of Job all about? Now, anytime you summarize something, you lose something of the quality. There's a reason it wasn't written as a summary. There's a reason the book of Job is written the way it is. And if all we do is boil it down, you can't say, okay, well, now I got it. Now I got the benefit, the value of this book. If that were true, then God would have just written the summary. He wouldn't have put you through the whole process. There's a value to the process of considering the book of Job. That doesn't mean a summary is unhelpful, but a summary needs to be a guide to the whole experience of reading Job, not a substitute for it. You don't get what you need with the Cliff's Notes. You might be able to answer test questions or quiz questions, but you don't get what you need with the Cliff Notes view of Job. You've got to work through it. But what does Job contain? Well, Job contains a story of loss and restoration. There is a man, the greatest of all the men of the East. He's the magnate. He's the cattle baron, if you will, of his time frame. And God has blessed him. God has blessed him in his family. God has blessed him in his finances. God has blessed him in his character. He's a good man, an upright man, one who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. And he loses everything. His children all die. His goods are all taken. His health is ruined. And he sits down on a pile of ashes to scrape himself with a piece of clay pot because he's itching all the time. And his wife says, give up and die. Give up. It's all over. And he himself comes to the conviction at one point that he's going to die that his life is going to peter out with all of this heartbreak all around him with illness that drags him into the grave. His friends come to comfort him. And when he starts to speak, when he shares what he's experiencing, they then start to correct him. And that breaks his heart even more. And then at the end of the book, there's restoration. Beyond all hope, Job gets his life back, his health, his prosperity, even more children are sent along. So that's the overview. But of course, if you don't go through the details of the speeches, Job's laments and other speeches, what his friends say, what he says back to them, and then two other characters speak, Elihu and the Lord speak. If you don't go through all of that, you really miss part of the quality of the book of Job. And I like this outline because it shows you probably what the Hebrew people who read this would have learned from the book. And notice this feature of the outline. You've got A, B, C, and D, and then you've got C prime, B prime, A prime, right? You've got C, B, and A with a little hash mark next to them. Now, this sort of structure that's like a series of concentric circles, there's a technical name for it. The technical name for it is chiasm. You don't need to know that, but just FYI, there's a lot of chiasms in the Bible. What is the point of this kind of a structure? Well, it highlights the middle. Think about it. Another way to think about it would be like a pyramid. You know, you've got your base and then you've got your next layer and you've got another layer. You've got your crown. And so you go up one side and down the other. And so there's sort of a pinnacle. In this outline, what is the pinnacle? 
What's the turning point of the book of Job? It's letter D. That's the midpoint in your outline. You've got a prose prologue, and that matches a prose epilogue. In between, you've got poetry. You've got Job's lament, and answering to that, you've got Job's confessions. You've got three cycles of dialogues, and then you've got three series of monologues, C and C prime, answering to one another. And in the middle of all of that, there's a poem about what true wisdom is. True wisdom is the fear of the Lord, chapter 28. So that outline, I think, is helpful because it shows you what's the turning point. You go up one side, you come to the fear of the Lord, and then you come down the other side. Now, the other side still has a lot to add. It's not just filler material. But that was the point that Job needed to reach. He needed to understand that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. And then he could grow. All of the bad things that had happened could now begin to work together for good when Job has reached that point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But until Job reaches that point, his sufferings aren't serving a good purpose yet. I mean, you can see that they're preparing for it. You can see that they're getting him there. But... That's also true with regard to us, right? We go through things and they don't start getting better. We don't start doing the right thing with them until we come to that moment of clarity, that moment of resolution, which in this book is attained in chapter 28. So let's talk a little bit, though, about the details of this outline. In chapters 1 and 2, you guys remember the story... There's an assembly day in heaven. The sons of God come before the Lord and Satan, the enemy, the accuser, also comes with them. God brings up to him, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And Satan says, Job only serves you because you've made his life easy. Make his life difficult and Job will curse you or bless you to your faith. The devil asks the question, Satan asks the question, does Job serves God for nothing. Job serves God for what he can get out of it. It's not genuine religion. It's not true fear of the Lord. It's self-serving. Job is making his religion about himself. He serves God because God pays him to do so. So that is put to the test. Now, it's very important to bear in mind for understanding the whole book. We know that, but Job doesn't know that. When Job is going through his trials, he didn't know the opinion that God had already expressed of him in heaven, that there was no one like him on the earth, an upright, a complete, a perfect man who feared the Lord and turned away from evil. Job didn't know that that was what God thought of him. And Job didn't know the whole background. It's also interesting that the accuser, the enemy, disappears from view. He's there in chapters 1 and 2, but he doesn't come back. Job's problem is not fundamentally with the devil. Job's problem is fundamentally with God. And and I don't say that irreverently, and I don't say that to throw Job under the bus like his friends did. I say that to describe that the resolution to Job's problem was not in figuring out, oh, the devil is at work here. The resolution to Job's problem was coming to know the Lord. Then the friends come, you know, he has three friends, and they come and they sit with him, and they don't say anything for a week. They see Job and they share his condition. They sit down on the ground with him. They don't know what to say. And then after a week has gone by, Job opens his mouth and he utters a lament. 
and he curses the day that he was born, the night that he was brought forth. He wishes he could remove his whole existence back to its very first moment. Well, his friends could be sympathetic up to a point, but they couldn't be sympathetic to that. So then they start, and that's the bulk of the book. That's from chapter 4 on, you know, through the end of chapter 27, you have this series of dialogues. Job speaks, and then Eliphaz says something, Job answers him. Bildad says something, Job answers him. Zophar says something, Job answers him. And then the cycle starts over. Eliphaz chimes back in, Bildad chimes back in, Zophar chimes back in with replies by Job. And notice this, when you get to the third one, Eliphaz speaks, Job answers him, Bildad speaks, and chapter 25 in Job is only six verses long. It's a very short chapter. Job speaks, and Zophar is quiet. Some people have thought, oh, you know, we lost something, or the text has gotten mixed up, and part of Job's speech really should have been attributed to Zophar or whatever. I think they're missing the point. The point is Job silences his friends. They don't know what to say, but Job has convinced them that they're not on the right track. Or even if he hasn't changed their mind, he's at least showed them it's useless to be arguing with Job. And when they're silenced, when Bildad just has a tiny little squib of a speech and Zophar doesn't even find anything to say, Then Job speaks a little bit more. Now that he's not involved in answering them point by point, he kind of goes on a more wide-ranging tour. It starts with what is true wisdom, which he needs to say because his friends have not demonstrated it. But then he also goes over his record. He talks about himself. And then you come to this three series of monologues where Job talks and then Elihu talks. And there's there's a little bit of a puzzle. There's a little bit of a conundrum there. Because we haven't heard about Elihu before. He wasn't mentioned in the opening chapter. So he kind of comes out of nowhere. And we know that he's younger than everybody else. And he talks for five chapters. And then the Lord comes on the scene. There's a voice out of the whirlwind that challenges Job. And then at the end, Job and his three friends and the Lord are there. But Elihu has disappeared again. So it's an interesting question. What do we do with Elihu? What are we supposed to think about him? And then the Lord speaks. Job has little short responses. And then you come to the prose epilogue, where Job is restored in terms of his prosperity, in terms of his family, but also the three friends are rebuked. God says to them, you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, as my servant Job has. And he says, you need to take sacrifices and you need to get Job to pray for you. And when Job prays for you, I'll forgive you. Well, Job is restored in terms of his vindication, right? Now the three friends know, and Job himself knows, who is on the Lord's side. What was true already at the beginning has now been shown to be true publicly by God's speech to Eliphaz. And with reference to Job being a historical figure, um, he's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel as a pattern of a righteous man chapter 14. And then, of course, he's also referenced in the book of James. You've heard of the patience of James. You've seen the end, the outcome, the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. We've already given a little introduction. We've talked about what the book contains to some degree. When we boil it down together, we have to acknowledge that this book is a little bit complicated. When Job undergoes all those losses and he says, the Lord gave and the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Do you have in the Bible a better example of resignation, of submission to God's inscrutable will? Until you come to Christ, you really don't. I mean, some people may come close, but Job is the pattern. Job is the pattern of patience. If Abraham is the pattern of faith, Job is the pattern of patience in the Old Testament. And yet, people talk about patient Job and impatient Job. Because then you hear Job start talking, and it sounds a little impatient. There are things that he says, and you're like, I don't know if that was a good thing to say. And of course, Job himself will say later on that he's spoken foolishly, that he got carried away. In fact, he says to his friends, why do you pay so much attention to my words? I mean, I'm speaking in great distress. You know, cut me a little slack on the expressions that I choose. So how do we put that together, that a non-Israelite who feared the Lord did undergo these terrible losses with a proper attitude, but then got carried away in speaking of his sorrows, and especially in defending himself from his friend's misguided attempts to correct him? Well, I think you can put that together if you just think about yourself. Can you have a good attitude about some things? Yeah. Have you sometimes had a good attitude about things that were hard or challenging or whatever? Have you ever handled a crisis and you get through and you're like, wow, I'm surprised at how well. And, and of course, you give the credit to the Lord. You say, the Lord really upheld me. I went through that crisis okay. But then the aftermath of that crisis carries on, continues, wears you down for days or weeks or months. How long did it take for Job's friends to hear the news about him and put their households in order and gather their stuff and come and see him and sit with him for seven days? I mean, that could have taken quite a long while right there. Well, sometimes it's like that in the moment, the bad news comes and the Lord just helps us and we rise to the occasion. Sometimes people are at their best in a crisis, but then the aftermath of that crisis, you know, the adrenaline is over and it it gets hard. So we could see that with regard to ourselves or also, you know, maybe we're not doing the wrong thing, but when we start talking, oh, it all comes out and it can come out in unfortunate ways. People who feel this huge tension between patient Job and impatient Job, you just want to say to them with a tinge of impatience, you do this too. It's not some huge mystery. You do this too. We all do this. Now, Ultimately, in answer to everything that Job said, God approached. He both corrected and defended him. And there's a wonderful truth embedded in that, which we'll come back to, and restored him to his former prosperity. Now, there are several challenges in interpreting the book of Job, and that's true even for those who approach it as the word of God, who approach it with submission, and who don't give way to all of these theories about how it was cobbled together out of a bunch of other documents or whatever. I think it helps. I think it resolves a lot of problems if you approach it as the word of God and just take it seriously at face value. And even the unbelieving interpreters or the unorthodox interpreters who have done best with the book of Job have been those who have said, okay, it is what it is. We don't know how it got to be what it is, but we're going to take it on its own terms. We're going to take it at face value and we're going to see what we can make out of it. They're the ones who have the most insight into what the book really teaches. All of that being said, there are some challenges in interpreting the book of Job. We're not told who the author is. Suggestions include Moses or Solomon. Some people would say that it was written even later. 
They look at the fact that there's a lot of Arabic words, there's a lot of Aramaic words in it, and they think that must mean that it comes from later in history. We don't know who the author is. The setting is patriarchal, but it could have been written many years after that particular episode. I mean, you think about Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis a long time after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had all left the scene. So maybe there's something similar happening with Job. So there's a lot we don't know. Here's another conundrum. Many good things are said by people who are criticized for their speech. For instance, Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is kind of singled out. God speaks to Eliphaz and the others and says, you have not spoken of me the thing that is right. Well, then you come to the New Testament and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul quotes something that Eliphaz said as being completely true. So that's one of the things we have to deal with is you've got Eliphaz and his friends and they're able to say some true things, not everything that they say is false, but then God rebukes them for what they say. So that's one of the big challenges with the book of Job is how do we filter that? And this is, this is my suggestion, and it's a general principle. I'm not saying it will cover every single case. But just as a general principle, I think we should try to take it that Eliphaz and his friends, what they say is true as far as it goes, unless they're specifically accusing Job of things that he denies, but that it's misapplied. It's taken in the wrong direction. Eliphaz and his friends did know the Lord, but they didn't know him enough. And so they kind of made a mess out of comforting Job. Well, there's a lesson for us right there as well. Very good lesson. Okay, here's another challenge. Job says some things that seem horrifying. And I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this. A, because I think sometimes people exaggerate how bad what Job says is. And B, because we are running out of time. But let's just take one quick example from Job chapter 10. There Job is speaking. He says, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. He knows what's going on, right? Like he's not lacking in self-awareness. He knows what mental space this is coming from. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? That doesn't sound like something we should say to God. Should we accuse God of smiling on the counsel of the wicked? Probably not. Job himself, in chapter 42, verse 3, for instance, will acknowledge speaking foolishly. But God says that Job spoke about him what was right. So with the friends, we have one problem. They say many things that are true, and yet they manage to be wrong. With Job, we seem to have the opposite problem. He says things that you read them, and you're like, ah, you shouldn't have said that. He acknowledges he shouldn't have said that. And God says, Job was right. I'm on Job's side with this one. Okay, so that is definitely a puzzle. That's something we have to work through. And I think there's a couple of things we can say about it. One is, in general, Job refused to defend God. I think you can find this in chapter 13, if I'm remembering correctly. Job refused to defend God partially by having respect of persons. Job knew that God cannot be defended by lies, even if they're pious lies. And that is amazing. That is a very hard realization for people to come to. So I think there's that part of it. And also Job acknowledges mistakes, slips, bitterness in his speech. And God isn't being minute to mark iniquities. 
God is observing the general direction that Job was moving and not nitpicking. And isn't it wonderful to know that with his children, God is not a nitpicker. It's easy to please God when you belong to him. We should definitely take that lesson on board because often we don't feel that way. We attribute our inner perfectionist to the voice of God. But God said, you know what? Job said the right thing about me, even though Job had made many mistakes. What a comfort, what an encouragement for pastors and for all who teach or preach. I may make many mistakes, and yet God can take the main thrust, the overall burden of the message, and still make that a blessing, still stand behind it and vindicate it. And then, of course, the opening scenes raise some questions. We have questions about the sons of God gathering. We have questions about Satan being there. We have, uh, we've got a lot of questions about all of those things. How does that work? And, you know, how quickly can Satan put all these trials together? I mean, it seems like it takes him no time at all to ruin Job's life. And then there's individual questions that come up over the course of the book. What is meant with the references to Leviathan and to Behemoth? Are we supposed to think of a hippopotamus or a crocodile or an elephant? Are we supposed to think of a mythological beast? Is this a reference to what would have been floating around in the cultural environment of the time? Is there some actual sea monster that the Lord at one time killed and overcame? We have questions about those things. We have questions about Elihu. Where's he come from? Is he right? Is he wrong? Is he better than Job's friends? Is he worse? People's opinions on Elihu are all over the map. Or then we have questions like about blessing Job. In some translations, you'll read curse God and die. It it literally reads bless God, but bless is apparently being used euphemistically like take your leave of God, say farewell to God, bid him goodbye. Job never does that. That's what Satan says he'll do. That's what his wife encourages him to do. But Job never blesses God in that way. But Job does bless God in another way. He blesses the name of the Lord when God gave and when God took away. So we have questions about, well, how does that particular wordplay fit together? And there's other things like that. Those are the challenges. On suffering, uh, this is also from the Reformation Heritage Study Bible, and I thought this was insightful. With regard to suffering, the book of Job has multiple perspectives. And the great thing for us would be if we could put all these perspectives together and apply them wisely, we would really have learned something. The narrator's perspective is that suffering is a spiritual battle for God's glory. It shows that God is worth serving even when life is hard. The three friends say suffering is the consequence of man's sin. And in a general way, they're right, but not when they apply it specifically to Job's suffering. For Job, suffering is an inexplicable problem. You could call that the existential perspective. And that's often where we're going to wind up. We're going to say, I don't know why this is happening to me. That doesn't mean it's wrong that it's happening to me, but it does mean it's hard to deal with. It does mean it's hard to understand. And it's okay to understand that. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to validate it when other people are feeling that. Elihu would tell us that suffering is a purifying process from God. And he's right. There is a point to suffering. The sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed, but also tribulation works patience, says the Apostle Paul. And then from God's point of view, Job's suffering is a call to trust and submission. And Job rises to that. Though he slay me, I will trust him. 
says Job. So if we could put all of those perspectives together, and if we could apply them properly to ourselves or to whoever we're encouraging, we would have a pretty good toolkit for encouraging people in the middle of suffering. Now, we also learn this. People can say the truth and still be wrong. Eliphaz is your prime example there. Well, that's a warning for us, isn't it? Have you ever told somebody the truth and yet the way you did it, the way you applied it, the truth that you told them was wrong? Not that what it, the statement wasn't factual, but that your use of it was inappropriate. I could take many verses from Scripture that are warnings and I could apply them to the hearts of God's people in a way that terrorizes and intimidates them instead of in a way that helps them avoid evil. And that would be true. It would be true that the Bible says that, but it would be a misapplication. Or then again, we can draw the very simple lesson that life is complicated. Should Job have suffered all these things? Well, if you just look at how he behaved, our instinctive answer is no. Was it wrong for Job to suffer those things? No. Was it ultimately productive of greater good? Yes, it was. Here's a wonderful lesson from the book of Job. God defends even his imperfect people from accusation and slander and misrepresentation. That's how the whole book begins. Satan The accuser is doing his job, if you want to call it that. He's accusing Job. But what is he accusing Job with? He's accusing Job with lies. And God rises to defend Job. God vindicates the honor of Job. God demonstrates that Job is better than Satan's lies about him. And Job says it. Job recognizes it in chapter 16. He says, my witness is in heaven. Well, we can all say that with reference to Christ. Here we are, sometimes we're misunderstood, sometimes we're misrepresented, sometimes we're slandered. Our witness is in heaven. The Lord Jesus knows the truth and he rises to defend us. Satan may rise to accuse, but the Lord Jesus can shut him down. That's his job as our advocate, as our intercessor. Or then again, you think about the overall flow of the book of Job. Job has questions. And God doesn't answer those questions. When God comes on the scene, he doesn't give Job the answer. He doesn't say, well, you see, Job, I was proving to the devil that you are an upright man. He doesn't say that. Instead, he asks Job questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Do you give life to these animals and those animals? Did you do this? Did you tame Leviathan? How is any of that an answer to Job's questions? Well, in the New Bible Dictionary, I, don't, I didn't completely agree with the article on Job there, but I thought the conclusion, the ending of the article was pretty good. And I'm paraphrasing and summarizing here. But God's problem to the answer of suffering was not an explanation about suffering. It was himself. What did he do to help Job? He reminded Job. He showed Job more deeply and richly who he was. And that's what Job says. I've heard of you with the hearing of the ears, but now I see you. That is the answer to our suffering as well. We may get explanations, but do you need an explanation? Not as much as you need God himself. And we're back where the sermon ended. What is the answer to your problem, to your questions of suffering? It's Christ. It's God made known 
in the Lord Jesus Christ.